The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. I will. I will not wear the mask. 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 I will not wear a mask. I will not get the vaccine. I will not get the vaccine. And I will not get the vaccine. I will resist evil. I will resist evil. I will resist evil. I will submit to God. I will submit to God. I will submit to God. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust, and I will not be afraid. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day. For the Lord is the great God, and the great King above all. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked chime? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of this I hate the work of those who fall away. my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, Mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall stand. On an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp, with harmony sound. For you, O Lord, have made me glad through your works. I will you, triumph in the works of your are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. I will defy tyrants. 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 And with that, good morning, America. Welcome Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTUV, WXYZ people. All the boat rockers who are in the house and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons Liberty Radio Show here on Red State Talk Radio. We use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you not live. We're pre-recording the show due to the time restraints of our guest. And, uh, but I am coming to you from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina. The editor at SonsLibertyMedia.com and for Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns you about. I do hold to the book, the Bible. As the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us here today. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsofLibertyRadio.com and also SonsofLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're watching today uh, and or you want to watch by Red State Talk Radio, you're listening to us on the radio, and you want to join us on the video portion of the radio show, head over to SonsofLibertyMedia.com. Scroll down right on the right side of the page. Now, this is where we will be streaming live. Uh, this is today's show, which was Tuesday, <laughs> where we had Jason Garwood on uh, about health for all of life. 
you'll be able to click on that, enlarge it. You can watch the video portion of the show, and you can also jump in there in our chat room. We've got a lot of people who normally gather in here on the mornings, make new friends, uh, patriot friends, and build one another up together and get of the same mind with the same kind of people that are looking to make a difference, not just point out and complain about the problems. Again, we like to make talk radio, do radio. We go out and do uh, what we learn. Right above that is Bradley's show from the previous day. You can click on that and watch that. He comes on live at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central. You can catch that right here at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. Right above that is where you can subscribe to our newsletter. We don't rent your email. We don't sell it. We don't spam you. But you get all the articles we have for the day. That is in, it comes to you once a day in your email inbox, including the morning show archive that uh, we're doing right now. That'll be put in an archive format, video, podcast, any of the books, the links to those, uh, and any other things that we may make mention of. Those links will be all in one place where you can find them later. Also, if you would like to help us in what we do, we don't ask you for money. We just let you know that we do have needs. It does cost money to do the things that we have. Uh, that we do. So if you would like to and you're able to, there's a donate button if you'd like to support the message of the Sons of Liberty. There's also a way you can do that monthly. You can become a son or a daughter of Liberty. Set that up for whatever amount you would like to contribute to be a part of what we do, not only on radio and internet, but as we go out through America, providing our Christian and constitutional heritage to the people who need to know that so they can be involved in this uh, fight to win back our culture and the Christ. Also, our story is there. We've got T-shirts, coffee mugs, water bottles, all kinds of stuff. They're great conversation starters. We really don't make a whole lot of money off of that at all. In some cases, we lose money. But the point is, is to help you in doing whatever you're doing in your sphere of influence. And there's some equipping tools in there as well that you can check out. Um, Today, we've got a special guest with us. We've had him on the show before, Thomas DiLorenzo. And uh, he's the author of The Real Lincoln and How Capitalism Saved America. He's talking about real capitalism, not this cronyism stuff uh, that we've been seeing going on so long in our political um, uh, life in, here in America. He's a professor of economics at Loyola, Loyola College in Maryland. He's a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. He's written for The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Washington Post, Reader's Digest, Barron's, and many other publications and he's joining us again today. We're going to talk about the new book that he's got out that was due out the week after we had him on the first time called The Problem with Lincoln. And it's my pleasure to welcome back Thomas DiLorenzo to the Sons of Liberty. Good morning. Good morning, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great, man. And it's good to see your face. I think last time you had a little bit, of, it was a little bit dark there and uh, we couldn't make you out very well, but but it was a good interview. Uh, we covered a lot of things with regard to Lincoln um, how that progressed on through our history and stuff. And so you were having a new book that was coming out called The Problem with Lincoln. Now, you've written a lot on Lincoln, and it's not very flattering for Lincoln. And, you know, we've had in the past, I, ever since I was a kid, I remember as a kid getting these books on Lincoln. And, you know, I looked up to Lincoln. There were some things that I think are admirable um, about Abraham Lincoln, especially in his younger days. Um, but for the most part, boy, he has been romanticized as the pinnacle of Americanism and the great president. Uh, I think it was National Treasure, the film, you know, where they really pushed him. He's he's the, he's our greatest president, you know, was one of the lines in there and stuff like that. And I had to stop and say, tell my kids, no, 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 he's he's not that. So with that said, 
What was the reason? You, you've already written a couple of books on Lincoln. What was the reason to push for further writing the problem with Lincoln that you put out? Uh, well, you know, it's not unusual for people who specialize in one area to write several books on the same general topic. There are people who have written, other people who have written numerous books on Lincoln, the so-called Lincoln scholars. Some of them have written 10 or 12 or more books on, this, on different aspects of Lincoln. So it's not unique. But, uh, you know, my first book came out uh, in 2002, The Real Lincoln. And uh, uh, one of the motivations for that was that it always seemed weird to me, it's very strange, that uh, we can criticize any politician in the world, any president, President Kennedy, President Johnson, President Clinton, President Trump, anybody, except this one guy, except Abraham Lincoln. And, and why is that? You know, no matter no matter who they are, and I'm an economist by by education. I was an economics professor for 41 years, and I got into uh, Civil War history, and I got into uh, you know reading about Lincoln, and I discovered that his whole political career before becoming president was all about economic issues, had nothing to do with slavery, the big big issue of the day. By the time we get to the 1860s. But uh, and so I thought that would be that would be a reason for me to look into this and write something more about uh, Lincoln's what I call his real agenda. And and I also am a libertarian, uh, not a libertine, but a libertarian. And uh, and and I found out that uh, the historians uh, wrote books with titles like uh, or chapter titles like uh, Lincoln the Dictator uh, or the Lincoln Dictatorship. And and for good reason, you know, he abolished uh, or he uh, he uh, he abolished the, the writ of habeas corpus unilaterally, which was illegal for him to have done, and had the army mass arrest tens of thousands of northern states uh, political opponents, shut down over three hundred newspapers in the northern states, uh, kind of like what's going on today, isn't it, with uh, Facebook and Instagram yep. Yep. censoring everybody? Uh, Lincoln was the founding father of censorship and attacks on the on the First Amendment. And and the war itself was an act of treason. Uh, you know, once you, you look into this, treason is defined in uh, not the war itself, but the invasion of the southern states. There's one definition of treason in the Constitution. It's Article 3, Section 3, and it uses the word only. It says treason is only defined as levying war against the United States we're giving aid and comfort to uh, to their enemies. Now, the, and that means the the phrase "United States" is in the plural, their enemies, and the word "them" is in there, also referring to United States, which means not uh, uh, the government in Washington. It meant the all the individual free and independent states, as they're called in the Declaration of Independence. So, levying war against any or all of the free and independent states is the only definition of treason in the United States Constitution, Article 3, Section 3. And that, of course, is exactly what Lincoln did when he invaded the southern states. And so, but during his time, he took it upon himself to redefine treason as basically meaning disagreeing with him uh, or opposing his administration. And they, they imprisoned, like I said, tens of thousands of northern civilians, including... Uh, Congressman Henry May of Maryland, the mayor of Baltimore, uh, newspaper editors, the grandson of Francis Scott Key, who was a newspaper editor 
in Baltimore at the time who had editorialized against the illegal suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. And so, uh, and so all of that, uh, all of that is there are things that uh, very few of us are taught in school. I grew up in Pennsylvania. I went to public school, and I never heard any of this. Uh, I, I was taught to memorize the Battle Hymn of the Republic and the Gettysburg Address in elementary school, but I never really was subjected to any of the real history of uh, Lincoln and, and the war, for that matter. Well, don't don't feel out of place. I mean, I'm a Southern boy, and they didn't teach us this stuff either. They did the same thing you, and I, I guess it's kind of like that series uh, where the victors write the history. And you're making mm. mention of Lincoln here that he, you know, he's into economic, econ, economics, <laughs> excuse me. And one of the things that strikes me, and I, I reiterate this to the audience often, I had a friend, Victor Portley, he used to come on with me on Tuesdays and we used to walk through history together, uh, especially why we we're in the Middle East and we we're putting all these things together before all this, uh, you know, COVID nonsense came about. And one of the things he told me, he said, you know, somebody who has a Marxist leaning will always start dealing with economics first and foremost. And 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 they leave off justice. They they leave off that. And as, as we've seen in the Supreme Court buildings, justice is what guards our liberty. If we allow people to continue to be just lawless, uh, then it, it it's a real threat to liberty. And we've seen that over and over throughout the years. We'll get into some of those those examples as we go along. But with Lincoln, one of the things that always comes up, and I've we've had several discussions, uh, me and some friends and some chat groups, to deal with this. One of the things that comes up is people say, okay, but they they really didn't attack. You know, the the guys they they gave like Fort Sumter and all this. South Carolina gave it to the Union to do this, that, and the other, and then they were the ones who went in and started firing. They were the troublemakers, and so he had a right to go in there and do that for this land. This. How do you address something like that right off the bat? Because usually that's the first argument that people have when they're dealing with Lincoln to say, no, he wasn't the tyrant. It was those bad old Southern boys. They were they were the troublemakers. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, <laughs> well, as a matter of historical fact, uh, Fort Sumter was built and paid for by South Carolinians. They had leased uh, for their own benefit, for their own protection. They had leased Fort Sumter to the federal government because the federal government was collecting tariffs in Charleston. The lease had run out, and Fort Sumter had reverted back to its owners, the people of South Carolina. Uh, Lincoln had uh, his Navy abandoned Fort Moultrie nearby and occupied and took over Fort Sumter and kicked out the South Carolinians who had been occupying Fort Sumter at the time. And so uh, that's where the aggression was. As far as the acts of a, the initial act of aggression, it was that. It wasn't the bombardment of the fort. And by the way, no one was harmed, let alone killed, during the bombardment of the fort. The, uh, the federal soldiers were invited into town to buy groceries. They weren't being starved out. Uh, they were given fair warning. That they, this is our property. Get out. Uh, you know, South Carolinians at that time would not have, did not tolerate a, uh, a foreign fort on their uh, property any more than George Washington would have tolerated a British fort in New York Harbor when he was president. And so that's, that's just, you know, straightening out the record there. And even so, the, you know, the idea that uh, the, the invasion of all the southern states and the killing of, uh, 
think 350 to 400,000 Southerners was an appropriate response to the bombardment of a fourth fort where no one was injured, let alone killed. Seems uh, absolutely ludicrous uh, to me and, and, and downright evil and immoral. Well, I couldn't agree more. In fact, there's more than that. Um, let's talk a couple of things that, that went on in the war and, and show just how immoral that Abraham Lincoln was. Um, we know that, that slavery was not the issue. We've got tons of quotes where he, he had no intention of freeing the slaves. In fact, many have, have relabeled the War of Northern Aggression as the war to enslave the states. And so he didn't free any slaves. He just made everybody a slave to federal government. I mean, he, he paved the way for that. There's no question in my mind about that. But you wrote recently, I think it was back in February, and uh, we carried the the article, and it was called The Last Time the D.C. Establishment uh, Labeled Its Political Opposition as Insurrectionists and How It Taught Them About National Unity. Now, I think this is very important because of the thing that you mentioned right at the start of the show, you were talking about independent sovereign states, and they had come together sort of as a confederacy to form a union to do certain things, but not that 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 creature that they had created become a beast that devours them and tells them what to do and, and all of these other things. They just they made some agreements there. So when we get to something like um, uh, this guy Sherman, who was who was, I guess, Lincoln's attack dog, if you will, and all of the things he did, would that not demonstrate not just the immorality of Sherman, but of the guy who pretty much led him off the chain? Right. Well, Lincoln uh, waged war on Southern civilians from day one. You know, the very first uh, battles, you know, the Battle of First Manassas, uh, for example, it was, a, it was partially a looting spree in Northern Virginia, uh, among, among other things. And so, uh, yeah, and Sherman, of course, well, was a monster. Uh, in, my, in my new book, The Problem with Lincoln, which uh, was a bit of the problem with Lincoln, published uh, last July, less than a year ago. Um, I, have one, I have a chapter, a whole chapter on waging war on civilians. And, uh, you know, you read things, and these are from mainstream history books, and they all, they're all filled with excuses for Sherman and Lincoln. But when you read about what he did when he got to Atlanta, there were no Confederate soldiers left. They had evacuated. There was only about 10% of the civilians left, old men, women, and children. And for four days, Sherman ordered his artillery to bombard buildings where there was a human habitation was spotted, uh, a mass murder, in other words. And there are you know, you, you, the accounts, and I quote some of these accounts, of people being cut in half by uh, Sherman's artillery, uh, the corpses of children in the streets. Uh, at one point, Sherman's uh, chief engineer, chief military engineer, a Captain Poe, told him there's no military advantage to any of this, and he, and he implored him to stop it because he was looking through his binoculars and seeing the corpses of women and children in the streets of Atlanta. And, and Sherman, like the devil, just said, no, it's a good thing. It'll quicken the end of the war. He had, a, he had an excuse for everything, Sherman. And then, of course, he was rewarded for that. He was made a, a national hero by Lincoln and the Republican Party after that. And it is very telling, Tim, that as soon as the war was over, uh, 
they, they put Sherman in charge of uh, the Indian Wars, and, and he spent the next 25 years of his life uh, basically in charge of the mass murder and the genocide of the Plains Indians. Uh, and according to the, uh, the research that I've read on this, some 60,000 Plains Indians, women, children included, were murdered by the, uh, the Federal Army. And the main reason given for that by Sherman himself was to make way for the railroads. That is, the, the government subsidized railroad corporations. And that was the main reason for that. And so that's the kind of person Sherman was. He was a mass murdering maniac. And he's a big hero. He turns out to be a big hero. And one of the things that really has angered the mainstream Lincoln scholars, as they call themselves, with me, is that in my earlier book, then in this book, I, I quote some of the big shot Lincoln scholars like James McPherson bragging of what a brilliant micromanager Lincoln was of the war. He spent more time in the War Department telegraph office than anywhere else except the White House itself and on and on and on. And then and, and, and I argue in my books that it makes no sense, therefore, to say that he had no idea what was going on in Atlanta or anywhere else with, with Sherman. He knew exactly what was going on. He, he, he gave out the orders. Uh, we even know now that Lincoln issued an order to try to assassinate Jefferson Davis. There was a cavalry attachment that was captured by the Confederates outside of Richmond. And there was a letter, the actual order, signed by Abraham Lincoln. And it took over 150 years. But uh, forensic researchers have determined that that letter was legitimate. It was it was. It was Lincoln's handwriting. It was it was the real order to try to assassinate Jefferson Davis. So that's the kind of person uh, Lincoln was, and uh, and Sherman, and, and so and yes, you're right. And of course, Sherman's famous quip. We're, we're all supposed to forget about all this by repeating his famous quip that war is hell. Yes. Well, if you take that attitude, you know that makes it more likely that we will have more war in the future because Americans will say, oh well, it's war is hell. Everybody knows that. Uh, you know, nothing to see here. Move along. Don't complain. And and that was always the idea, I think, of the, the deification of Lincoln and his uh, generals like Sherman. Yeah. And he had he really didn't have a lot of compassion, even for some of his own soldiers. There was uh, I was trying to think of it while you were talking about this. There was somewhere I wanted to say it was in the, the, the Midwest or so uh, where there had been. Basically, they were starving out the Union or the Union, the Confederate troops, and they had prisoners of war that were his soldiers, and they knew they were starving, and they said, look, let us send out these guys to you guys because they need food, and they were actually concerned about them, and he said, no, we're not having any of that. We're not going to take them. I don't remember exactly where that was, but that was a pretty big story that demonstrated just his lack of compassion for even his own his own soldiers. Yeah, the the, the name of the game always was we will accept 10,000 deaths of Union soldiers if it, if it can lead to 20,000 deaths of Confederates. And so, uh, and, and for example, they, they refused prisoner exchanges with the famous Andersonville prison uh, at the time because they thought uh, it was a war of attrition. And they thought, you know, a 10% reduction in uh, Confederate forces could be a calamity for the Confederates. But since the population of the North was so much bigger, that a 10% reduction would not be a calamity in terms of manpower. And so they looked at it as a numbers game, as as tyrants always do, isn't it? They always look at their so-called citizens as 
uh, cannon fodder and and sort of chickens waiting to be plucked by the tax collectors, and and, that, and that's how uh, that's how the Lincoln regime viewed its citizens, isn't it? During the war, they it was the first federal conscription law, by the way, that that came into power, came into uh, the law of the land during the Lincoln administration, and at the same time, Lincoln ordered the the uh, the shooting of deserters after he uh, imposed his conscription law in 1863. And so there were daily uh, ceremonies where a deserter or deserters would be rounded up and shot right in front of the other troops to teach them a lesson. Wow. Wow. There's just a lot there. And and all of this leads down a road here, this whole, uh, this federal army stuff uh, with a sort of a standing army, whereas our constitution says, if you're going to have an army, you can have it for two years, you got to renew it. But otherwise it's a militia who are the law enforcers, the one who repel the invasions and put down insurrections. And uh, Lincoln was using this against his own people. Now, when you wrote the book, The Problem with Lincoln, what was the main focus that you had there in this particular book? Uh, well, um, Regnery Publishing, my publisher came to me and asked me to write this book. I thought, you know, I had, there had been a lot of new books that had come out, and, and I take credit for that. There, there, there are several very good books that had come out after my book, The Real Lincoln, came out that were very critical of Lincoln. And, and I think and I take the credit for that. I made it possible for other people to write books uh, portraying Lincoln as a real human being and a politician to boot and not God which is sort of the typical uh, shtick you get about Abe Lincoln yes. in the schools and in the books and so forth. And so this book uh, I wrote after 18 years of additional research, writing, debating, and debating some of the big shot Lincoln scholars of it and, and reading uh, a lot of these new books. So I incorporated, I incorporated my, my new knowledge that I, that I accumulated over 18 years along with other, the research of other people and uh, one of the things I did in this book is I have 10 appendices of all these uh, original documents that anyone can read for themselves. For example, if you want to know what the purpose of the war was, just read Abe Lincoln's first inaugural address, where he says very clearly it has nothing to do with slavery. It's all about uh, tax collection. He said, it is my duty to collect the duties and imposts, which were tariffs on, on imported goods. And then he said, beyond that, there would be no invasion of any state or no bloodshed. So he literally used the words invasion and bloodshed to describe what would happen to any state that refused to collect the tariff on imports, which had just been more than doubled two days earlier. And there was no federal income tax at this time. And so uh, federal taxation was 90% of the revenue was collected by uh, tariffs which were passed on in terms of the higher price of goods, of everything everybody bought. And so, and that was more than doubled two days earlier. And so, and also I have the, the, war, the war aims resolution of the U.S. Congress as an appendix in my new book, The Problem with Lincoln, where the United States Congress announces to the world that the war has, the invasion of the South has nothing to do with slavery. It's about saving the Union. Okay, and so, and of course I argue in the books that uh, that Lincoln's war did not save the Union; it destroyed the Union because the Union of the Founding Fathers was a voluntary Union. And I provide the uh, ratification documents as appendices, also of New York, Rhode Island, and Virginia, that all said that we reserve the right. You know, we're going to delegate these few powers to the central government, the federal government, for our benefit. 
mostly for our protection, war and national in foreign policy purposes. And then they said, but if any time in the future, this government behaves in a way that is contrary to our happiness, and they use the word happiness, then we reserve the right to reassume those powers, to, to secede, in other words. And when those states, New York, Rhode Island, and Virginia, were accepted into the Union, it became the law of the land that those rights belong to all the states and all the future states, because no one state can have more rights than another state under the Constitution, or the people of any one state under the Constitution. And so there you have it. Uh, the, the Union was voluntary. Everyone knew it. That's why the first secession movement in America was the New England Federalists, who plotted for more than 10 years after Thomas Jefferson was elected to, uh, to secede. They eventually decided not to. They actually held a secession convention in Hartford, Connecticut in 1814. Uh, you can look it up, just Google um, the Hartford Convention and read all about it. And, uh, but they, they decided not to, but of course, everyone understood they had the right to secede. And, uh, but Lincoln ended all that um, uh, with his war. And that was the real purpose of the war, to, to really destroy federalism and states' rights once and for all, and to impose a consolidated national government that would uh, create an empire that would compete with the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, and the French Empire of the day. So it was basically they. They he was turning it back around. He was when when we had you on last time we were talking about uh, Hamilton and uh, yes. what how he wanted to go back to that. Lincoln was actually following in the line of Hamilton, if I'm understanding you correctly, as to what he was doing. Right, I've, I've called him the political son of Alexander Hamilton because of two things: uh, the marriage of corporations and government. Hamilton championed protectionist tariffs. The subsidies or what we call today called corporate welfare for corporations and a national bank run by politicians to pay for the subsidies to politically favored groups, especially corporations. And so uh, and, and so Hamilton's uh, sort of Machiavellian scheme was to link the, the moneyed people of the country, the rich people, the wealthy people who were the business, the business establishment to the government because he knew that they would always support the government Hamilton wanted the government to be much bigger than what the Constitution allowed for. When the Constitution was finally adopted, Hamilton denounced it. He called it a frail and worthless fabric. And Lincoln was the political son of Alexander Hamilton. As I said earlier, his whole career for 25 years before becoming president was spent promoting the Hamiltonian economic agenda of protectionist tariffs, corporate welfare, and a bank run by politicians. What a horrible idea, a bank run by politicians. <laughs> but that's what they called it, the American system, which was uh, an absurd lie because it was really the corrupt British system that we fought the revolution against run by Americans. That's always what the Hamilton and Henry Clay was in there too. And Lincoln, a political cabal was all about, and it was not achieved until Lincoln came along. There was a 75 or 80 year political battle over all of this, and uh, but it, it was finally achieved uh, at gunpoint. It could not be achieved by votes. President after president, beginning with Jefferson himself, vetoed all of these things. Uh, and, you know, a funny story is actually when uh, the, uh, the Hamilton, Clay, Lincoln cabal thought they had, they had uh, finally won in 1840, 
William Henry Harrison is elected president, and he was a, a Hamiltonian. And Henry Clay was in charge of the Congress, basically. And so they finally thought they were going to have their uh, American system put in place. Harrison dies one month late, one month later uh, of uh, pneumonia. And John Tyler becomes president, John Tyler of Virginia. Well, John Tyler was a Jeffersonian. He opposed all of it, and he, and he, and he vetoed all of it. And he was kicked out of the Whig Party at the time and burned in effigy in front of the, front of the White House. So uh, Henry Clay and the Whigs, and Lincoln was a Whig at the time, threw a big hissy fit in Washington, D.C. over this. And I think it was kind of a hilarious uh, sort of episode that they thought they had finally won, but they didn't. And it took another uh, 25 years to finally cement into place this corrupt system that, uh, that again, sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? The, the, the marriage of big corporations it does. Yep. to oppress the, uh, the people. Well, and then that leads to a practical application. You know, there's a couple of things that you had said before uh, that, you know, you were writing to present Lincoln as the man that he was, not as this God as he's been portrayed. And it's kind of interesting when you go to D.C., you see they have him portrayed as God. I mean, my goodness, the yes. big statue on the throne with the fasces and all that on there, you know, the big memorial, the big area for worship, if you will, uh, that's out there to to remember Lincoln. Um, and then you said the issue was, you know, he's going in there. Oh, we're going to we impose we double these taxes. Now we're going to go in there. And I got to tell you, Tom, one of the things that gets me is <clears throat> all of these federal agencies, to me, are born out of that same thinking of where he used the military to go and, you know, get the taxes, if you were. Because when we look at the Constitution Who's the people who's supposed to be executing the laws? That's the first thing. It's really the the people who make up the militia. And I mean, it says it right here. Article one, clause, uh, section eight, clause 15. The militia is to execute the laws of the union. It goes on to say that they're to be provided for armed and, and disciplined in these kinds of things. So instead of the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the ABCs, the DEFs and all these other ones that are that have been formed. I believe unconstitutionally, it puts the people in great peril because there's always this threat that government just wants to write another law, uh, a pretended law, in order to uh, attack, to terrorize the people, uh, to build itself up. And now we're seeing it uh, in, you know, we saw it with Donald Trump in this whole Operation Work Speed using the people's money to enrich big pharma with vaccines that we know are deadly. They're not safe. They're not effective. Then he's using the military to start delivering it and even help, uh, you know, inject it into people. I don't see anything that's changed. I see that things have gotten a lot worse with the expansion of that kind of mindset. Well, yeah, that's well, that's why the Constitution allows only uh, for two years of a standing army. Uh, because the fear was that, you know, the British used the standing army as basically a standing army of tax collectors. And they would, they would go into people's homes and, and uh, occupy the homes and steal from them and enforce uh, the uh, King George III's taxes. They didn't want to have anything to do with that. Hamilton wanted that. That's what Hamilton, Hamilton was against the, the temporary two-year, uh, you know, army that had to be funded uh, on a contingency like that. That's why when, when, when Pennsylvanians, Western Pennsylvanians, protested the whiskey tax in the 17, uh, 1780s, 
it was Hamilton who convinced George Washington, and he was his treasury secretary at the time, to raise a 15,000-man conscript army and send them to Pennsylvania to put down this tax rebellion. And, and these, were, these were grain farmers who decided they could make more money turning the grain into whiskey because it was easier to ship than trying to transport grain all across the state to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia. And so they went up there, and, and Hamilton wanted to teach them a lesson. He wanted to hang all the leaders of the Whiskey Rebellion. George Washington would have nothing of it. He went home, and he pardoned all the leaders of the Whiskey Rebellion. But, but that proved to me, reading about that, Hamilton's view of the Whiskey Rebellion, that, that he, the reason why he wanted and others want, did you know, the opposition to the Jeffersonians wanted a standing army was they understood that it could be a standing army of tax collectors and enforcers just like the British that they had fought the revolution against. Their position was always, it's bad to be on the, the tax-paying side of an empire, but if you're on the money-collecting side, it's not so bad. And Hamilton, Clay, Lincoln, uh, the establishment, they always figured they'd be on the money-collecting side, just like today's establishment uh, in, in, in Washington, D.C., and so it's always been them against us. It's never been Democrats versus Republicans. It's been the establishment against the people. The government has always waged war, first and foremost, on its own people through taxes, regulations, controls, and so forth. It's not only foreign invaders that we that the government uh, wages wars against. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about American government is it is it was founded to be the, the the people were to be the government. The, our representatives were just there. Our employees they were supposed to fall in line with what the Constitution said. They were supposed to be protectors of our liberties and only do those limited things that were there. But then you've got the the fly in the ointment with you know always at the heart of everything. And I I do think our founders knew this was that you know, man is not basically good. I, I don't buy that at all. I think the scripture teaches us that that's not the case, that he's prone to temptation. He's prone to, to be wicked. And so <clears throat> this is why you have, have these things in there where the people can get them back in line because they know they can stray out of there. So this stuff starts happening and you're you're writing about it. And I, I got to tell you, I think you're exactly right when you say you opened up sort of the uh, something there for other writers to come along behind you, not that some people had not written before, but to come along behind you and to be a lot more open about what Lincoln was about, what had happened during that time. And some people may be going, <clears throat> why are you guys focused on all this? Isn't this stuff like 170 years removed from now? Well, yes and no. The events do, but the application of it continues, and that's why we're seeing some of the stuff that we're seeing today, right? Well, absolutely. The the uh, the deification of Lincoln took place immediately after his death. And one of the, one of these new books that I wrote wrote of uh, in my in my new book, The Problem with Lincoln, is a book called The Unpopular Mister Lincoln by Larry Tag, and he he makes the case that uh, in his own lifetime, Lincoln was by far the most hated and reviled of all American presidents. And he's talking about the people of the North, not the people of the South. And that all was reversed or turned around after his death, where they turned him into a, a saint, that uh, they being the Republican Party, with the help of the New England clergy, uh, by, by the way. And, 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 and it's so absurd, in, in, because Lincoln was not even a believer. In, in, my, in my new book, 
For example, there, I, I quote, a, there's a book called The Deification of Lincoln by a man named Ira Cardiff. And this was published in 1943. And he quotes uh, Lincoln's uh, personal bodyguard in the White House, Colonel Ward Lehman, called Lincoln an infidel. His first law partner, John T. Stewart, called him a, quote, open infidel. His private secretary, John G. Nicolay, said he was Lincoln was a lifelong atheist. Judge David Davis, who Lincoln appointed to the Supreme Court and who wrote the, the uh, dissent to the famous Dred Scott Supreme Court case, uh, he said that Lincoln had, quote, no Christian religious faith. And, and Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, that Lincoln, quote, had no faith. And so, so, so for 160 years, though, we've had uh, this propaganda about Lincoln that would lead you to believe that he, he, he spent most of his time in the White House on his knees praying to God, despite the fact that it's exactly the opposite of who the man actually was. And this was all the work of the Republican Party and the, with the help of the New England clergy and the end result of that is sort of not only the deification of Lincoln himself, but the presidency uh, became sort of deified, so to speak. And of course, the the, the Lincoln Memorial is uh, is an atrocity in, in that regard. And I have a long section uh, about the Lincoln Memorial in in my book. I don't want to you know take up the time too much time reading about this, but it's covered with the fasces. Maybe the symbol of the Roman Empire, F-A-S-C-E-S, is where the word fascism comes from, the fasces. And the fasces, there's a little eagle on the fasces and a Lincoln Memorial to make it Americanized. And the the uh, National Park Service, which runs the Lincoln Memorial, has a publication entitled The True Meaning of the Lincoln Memorial. Look it up online. And it explains the true meaning of the Lincoln Memorial. And it says things in there is that, uh, you know, there's a, it means uh, basically fealty to executive authority. Obedience to executive authority is what the, uh, the symbol of the Lincoln Memorial is. Could you imagine Thomas Jefferson and James Madison saying, we need more monuments in Washington, D.C., imploring uh, blind obedience to executive authority and dictatorship? But that's, that's what the Lincoln Memorial says. That's what the government says is the real meaning of the Lincoln Memorial. And so, uh, and that's, of course, is another thing that we're not taught in school, is it? Well, that's absolutely amazing. And no, we're not taught those things. We're, we're, we are actually taught blind obedience. I don't even know if social studies gets a lot of airplay in today's public schools, uh, as it were. And so, yeah, that this is what I'm saying. There, there's some pra- very practical application for people if they're willing to, to learn from history. And we often talk about that. We talk about learning the lessons of history. And it's like, you know, men, they they can know dates, they can know names, they can know, you know, wars or cities or capitals and all this kind of stuff. They can know some things about what happened. But I think part of the problem, uh, Tom, is that that people don't understand why they happened. And, and when yeah. you understand why, that makes history come alive to me is understanding the why certain things happen, the response to it, whether it was good or bad, these kinds of things. And so I think a lot of the guys from the South have gotten a really bad rap because you've had uh, revisionists write the history. You've had uh, uh, other people who've infiltrated certain groups 
Uh, there was there's a pastor by the name of uh, John Weaver down in Georgia who's got a great sermon on uh, Nathan Bedford Forrester. And everybody thinks, oh, well, he is the guy who set up the KKK. Well, yeah, but it wasn't what it ended up becoming. It had nothing to do with that. And so you get all of this twisted history. And when you get down right back down to it, you come back to the same old thing. You, you've got some men who are trying to, uh, like in the, the old superhero things, they want to rule the world. And so they'll do it at any cost to anybody else. And then you have the people who, who push back against that. Yeah. You know, the, the KKK were pussycats compared to Black Lives Matter and Antifa, right. by the way, is as far as terrorism goes. But, yeah, uh, they, you know, one of the reasons um, that I was motivated to write these books on Lincoln is that the, the fake history of Lincoln is the ideological cornerstone of the American state. Every time the, uh, the U.S. government is plotting to invade somebody, sure enough, you have the chorus of court historians and politicians quoting Lincoln. And, uh, and I even quote uh, in my book that the former dictator of Pakistan, his name Musharraf, when he declared martial law in his country to justify it, he made a speech saying, Abraham Lincoln did this in America. So even foreign dictators think they can justify their tyranny by saying Lincoln did it first, therefore it must be a good thing. And so, and that, that's why the history matters. That's why you've got to get the history straight, because he was not a saint. He was not even a Christian, uh, for goodness sake. Uh, and even that was, you know, the, some of the same New England ministers who had excoriated Abe Lincoln for four years uh, you know, once the uh, the fix was in, he, uh, and they realized that the New England could have unlimited political power for a long, long time if they made the most out of his assassination. Uh, the the New England clergy came right in line, and on a dime, they they switched their opinion. They changed their opinions of Lincoln, and all of a sudden began praising him as. Uh, and, and there's even a a, 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 a lithograph of Lincoln uh, that I've talked about in my speeches. It was published in Harper's Magazine in 1865 that shows Abe Lincoln with with angel's wings being pulled up to heaven by angels, and beneath him is an open tomb. And, and that wow. was good, comparing Lincoln to Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that happened. Other other members of the clergy compared that compared him to Moses they said things like he led his people to the promised land, but he never made it there himself. And and so and that was in 1865, 1866. This began this deification, comparing this atheist to to God Himself. And so uh, and that went on for decades. Uh, even his mother, they, they they said things about his mother. About, I quote in my new book, The Problem with Lincoln, one of the very first biographies of Lincoln written after his death said his mother was uh, more chaste, perhaps, than any other woman except for the Virgin Mary herself. I think things like this, just uh, uh, absurdity. But that's what uh, generations of Americans were taught, which is why today uh, the average American knows nothing whatsoever about Lincoln other than the few slogans we're all taught about him in elementary school and then are repeated in school and in the in the popular culture for the rest of our lives. But uh, all the things that I've been talking about and writing about 
Uh, the average person whose only exposure to this is school uh, knows nothing whatsoever about about this topic. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, I was going to let you know, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Donald Jeffrey's work. Uh, a little bit. Yeah, I'm not, okay. I don't know him or I'm somewhat familiar with some of it. Yeah. OK. Yeah. We're, we're going to have him on next week. And he's he's brought up. I, I listened to him in an interview with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, and he's he sounds to me like he's right on uh, with what you're doing, kind of coming behind that. Of course, he takes a lot, a lot of different history, not just with Lincoln, but uh, bring some of that. We're mm-hmm. going to have him on next week. Uh, so it'll be kind of like, a, um, you know, the Bible talks about two or three witnesses confirm the matter. And I think that's that's what you can have is you have people who go back and they look at the history. They see it. They put it out there for the people to look at and come to their own conclusions. And uh, and that's why I appreciate your work so much, uh, because I've got these books as well. And I encourage other people to to read them because. Well, let's just let's take let's take this time. We we've got uh, what was it the Democrat was it no it wasn't the Democrat the Communist Party I believe it was had the big head of uh, uh, Lincoln at one of their meetings back in the I want to say it was the early nineties was or early nineteen hundreds I'm sorry and uh, then there's this there's the irony that the Republican states are are red that's that's an irony to me um, of what they've got. And yet many who call themselves conservative are, 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 you know, they're they're falling at the feet of of big government. They are dependent upon whether it's a Social Security check or Medicare or Medicaid. They're, they're, they say, well, we pay into it. And they don't realize this is the socialist system driving this kind of stuff. So there's a real application. But yet they're almost taught to be in awe of the guy who who really started this, pushing it through there. And even the Republicans push the idea uh slavery. This is what this is about is a free to slaves and all of this other stuff. And yet the people go right along with it. I don't know what it's going to take to open their eyes. I'm, I'm hoping that some of them who will listen to the show today will read your book or read your series of books on Lincoln and understand why this is so important uh, for people to know their history. Yeah, as far as the communists go, I do write in my new book, The Problem with Lincoln, uh, I mentioned the, the, I think it was the 1933 Communist Party Convention in Chicago. There was a gigantic uh, head of Lincoln on one side of the stage and a gigantic head of uh, Lenin on the other side of the stage. And I, and I provide a footnote in the book. If anyone wants to look it up, they can actually see it online. It's an online picture. And another interesting thing is that the, the Republican Party newspaper of record at the time, uh, there it is, there you got it. I have that in my book. Uh, the the Republican Party newspaper record at the time was the New York Tribune, edited by Horace Greeley. And for 10 years, in the, in the 1850s, ending just before the war, a twice-a-week columnist in the New York Tribune was Karl Marx himself. And, Karl, and, so I, and I write about this in, in my new book. And, and Marx and Lincoln had a correspondence. Marx wrote Lincoln a letter of congratulations when he was reelected, and Lincoln wrote him back a nice thank you letter. So they were like bosom buddies, uh, you know, pen pals, if you will. And uh, and so Horace Greeley had paid Karl Marx for ten years to write twice a week columns, spreading his ideas. Uh, and and this is this was the the paper of record of the Republican Party establishment. In the 1850s, you know, once the party was established in the early 1850s up through Lincoln's time. 
What do you think? Uh, we, we're coming up on the end of the show. We got about three minutes here. What do you think is um, uh, something that can be done besides just retaining, uh, just getting the knowledge, understanding the history? This should move people to respond differently to the tyranny that we're under that started back here in the 1850s, shouldn't it? Yeah, you have to understand that you know, the government is about symbols. That's why this, you know, the Soviets had uh, big statues of Lenin uh, all over the place and Marx all over the place. Uh, Iraq had Saddam Hussein set statues everywhere. We have Lincoln statues all, all over the place. So the state and the statists, the establishment obviously thinks history is important and the, the, the interpretation of history, I should say, is important because that's, that's one of the ways they use to solidify their powers over us without, you, without going through the trouble of uh, violence, because violence is risky to the establishment because we outnumber them by, the, by hundreds of millions. Now, every government is only run by really a few, few thousand people versus the millions, and they happen to have control of the armies and so forth, but they're greatly outnumbered by hundreds of millions of Americans. And so they, they can't use violence too much to, uh, to keep us down. And so they use propaganda and lies and rewriting of history and censorship uh, and, and these other tools as well. And the Lincoln myth is one of many myths. Uh, it's the most important myth uh, that, that I call the ideological cornerstone of American statism. And so you have to understand that. And once you understand that, you understand that the emperor has no clothes as the, as the saying goes, and 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 once more and more people understand that, then uh, then I think the system will crumble and we will regain uh, our freedom. Yeah, well, I I hope that that's that's my desire in bringing you on is to get to this history so people can understand where we've been, why we're here, where we're at, and then move toward correcting that. And uh, I, I assume this is why the statists were just fine with getting rid of all of the Confederate statues and things like that, because they were in opposition to this uh, establishment uh, kind of uh, uh, government that Lincoln and his cronies were bringing in. I want to take time just a second. Uh, people, you can check out uh, Dr. DiLorenzo's writing at Mises.org. He also writes over at LouRockwell.com. Pick up his book, The Problem with Lincoln. You're saying, hey, I don't believe this. This isn't what I was taught. Well, it wasn't what I was taught either, and I'm from the South. I had to go find this stuff myself. So if you want to do yourself a favor, check that out. Also, he's got other books there, The Real Lincoln, Lincoln Unmasked, Organized Crime. That's a good one, too. Be sure to check that out. And um, 23 Hours is going to be back with you. This is going to air on Thursday. So when we come back... We're going to have a special show on Friday, and then Kate will finish us off. Dr. Kevin Corbett and D. Manny Mitchell on Saturday. See ya. <laughs> 